Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on DubLab. Today I'm joined by artist and activist Greg Deal. Greg, how are you doing? Hi, I'm so good. I'm like really excited to be talking to you. Nice, me too. So although primarily a visual artist, Greg is also a powerful performance artist known for The Last American Indian on Earth and Redskin, amongst many others. Much of Greg's work deals with the indigenous identity and pop culture, touching on issues of race relations, historical consideration, and stereotype. So Greg, you know, that's condensing so much into a few sentences. Um, So how do you think of your art, and how much of that is really integrated with you as a human being? Well, I think a lot of it integrates with me as a human being. You know, it's it's not a job. It's not a necessarily like a vocation, you know, that I went to school for, although I did go to school for it. Um, it feels more like my life's work. And there is a blurred line between my work and my family and my personal life. And they all exist in the same space together, which I think is important for the arc because it's personal and because there's a personal aspect of it, which is, you know, personal culturally, uh, socially, um, but also mentally and physically and spiritually, uh, they all work together. And I think that a successful art has to work together in those ways. Um, but you're right. It's, it's, I mean, that is a condensed version. It, it gets a little bit complicated, but not so complicated that uh, somebody can't see it for what it's worth. And just in general, as a general check-in, before we get into your life, your incredible work, your family, um, how have you been during this time? And how have you been dealing with the lockdown? I've been okay. It's uh, I live in uh, kind of a heavy Trump area um, in Colorado. And uh, it's strange because people are just openly defiant about you know, protecting themselves and protecting others. Um, so that's an interesting thing to navigate, but there's so many of us in my household, you know, I have five kids and, and my wife, um, we've been married for 21 years. We just celebrated 21 years this month. And, and, uh, there's enough of us. It just, it keeps it interesting. We, we don't have to rely on others too much. We're, we're pretty much good to go. Um, but it's quiet where we are. So, um, yeah, it's, it's nothing too dramatic. So I, I have no complaints. And I imagine you have, you know, a lot to say on the subject, but how do you feel about the fact that the Native Americans have been so left out of the coronavirus data labeled as other all the things that have once again come up more starkly as a result of these times. I think that along with um, a number of other things have really shown its face in the inequity of uh, the inequity of, of um, America and sort of the way things are working, you know, like the people on the, on the low end of the scale economically, um, and medically and, and everything else, you can see clear as day where those problems are. Um, and I feel like that that's an opportunity for us to really rise up, you know, as, as, uh, citizens to, uh, enact change. It's really difficult. My tribe, um, is only, uh, there's, 
there's maybe about 1300 people that live on a reservation um and and uh, a lot more that live off the reservation but our reservation numbers per capita um are really bad not unlike the navajo nation that's getting a lot of press right now for the same thing um it's it's incredibly frustrating and it's incredibly scary because of course you know i have family there um but uh it's also i think an opportunity uh to to really shine a light on things that need to change in our country and to create a, a better circumstance for people who are struggling right now i think that has to be you know hopefully what comes from all of this um so we met originally at Donick's Muzak Festival and halfway through the day, I think, because uh, I was hosting it with him, um, I was on stage with you auctioning your incredible art, um, which was a, a ton of fun. And we were having a chat, you know, you, me, Donick Shepard, about art in general. And I just really instantly felt like I had known you forever. I, I actually, I totally agree. I, I think that one of the wonderful things about um, events like that and people in the creative industry, is especially you get to meet people that you just find a kinship with. And uh, I think that that's super cool. And I totally, uh, I totally agree with you. I, I think it was, uh, it was great to meet you. Plus it was just a, a cool event anyways. So the nature of this show as you know very well by now, is uh, really an exploration of the music that has made up some of your musical DNA over the years. And the title of the show, Orange Juice for the Ears, is taken from a line by Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep it really goes. And that line is, music can lift us out of depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic an orange juice for the year. And I just want to ask, what does that quote mean to you? I think it means everything to me. I mean, I, I've it just in the last years, I've been on this journey of music, which has allowed me to, to really touch on um, the way I grew up and some of the trauma of how I grew up and, and the way that that the music during that time, music I grew up with, music that that meant so much to me, which I think is probably going to be reflected here, um, is uh, really just been a healing process for me. And I've actually integrated into my latest works and I'm building into larger works that is integrating music that I grew up with. But um, I think that that is so spot on uh, because I wholeheartedly believe that no matter what kind of music you're talking about, that it has healing factors to it, uh, to calming us and to helping us make it past, you know, trauma and sadness and depression and loss and all of those things. And, and that is just the power of music. So with that in mind, what was the first song that imprinted on you? Um, the first song that imprinted on me was uh, Ohio uh, from Crosby, Seals, Nash & Young. Um, and I actually, I heard uh, a story from uh, Graham Nash where he, they heard about the shootings um, at uh, Ohio State. And uh, Neil Young, I think it was, like went into the forest and wrote this song, um, which kind of tells, I think, the 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 impact of that event in creating a protest song. Um, but it's also a really hippie thing to do to like go into the trees and like write a song. So I thought that was kind of funny, <laughs> but, um, 
I chose Ohio. Uh, it's uh, an incredibly impactful song. Okay, so now we're going to take a listen to Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. That was Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and that was Greg Deal's choice of the first track that imprinted on him. So, Greg, just tell, tell us again why that song in particular. Yeah, um, I mean, my mom and my dad both had pretty strong uh, music tastes, but um, my father's music, I just remember being the most prominent. And he's an old hippie, and so that was one of the bands that he really loved. And in his own music, it, his style sort of even reflects some of what you hear with uh, the old Crosby, Seals, Nash and & Young, and even just Neil Young solo. Um, but uh, those things remind me of him, but those things also remind me of really the first the first music that imprinted on me, which ironically is also protest music. So when you consider what I do for a living, that's that's pretty interesting too. And do you know how old you were when you first heard it? Somewhere between seven and ten years old. My dad had an old hippie van, like a, a VW van, and we used to just there was no seats in the back, so my sister and I would very unsafely um, just hang out in the back floorboard with blankets and read books and stuff. And my dad w- had this big speakers, and he would just blast this old hippie music while we were driving down to the desert in the middle of the summer. I have stark memories of that. And at the time, how did it make you feel? You know, what was it conjuring up? I think um, because this song and and there's another song that goes right after it that are incredibly emotional songs. And I don't think I felt emotional about them, but I do think I felt very moved by them because they're just they're they're very beautiful songs. And my dad was very um passionate about this and so we would all sing these songs as we were driving down and i just thought they were always beautiful songs or things you know the things that uh, i grew up hearing um and it just it was just good it was just good music and so what was that early home life like for you it was tough um park city you know and a lot of folks especially in la know where park city is um it kind of acts like a larger town it's not it's a uh it's a tourist town so it's a small town that uh has a lot of room for people to come visit during the ski season during the sundance film festival um and so my graduating class was about 100 kids and uh my sister and i um and maybe a couple of other people were really the only brown kids in the city And uh, that was really tough growing up and trying to figure out where my place was. And so um, that and, you know, a a dysfunctional enough family uh, that I had to try to figure out where I fit and music played a big part in that. And you obviously talked a lot about, you know, your dad's influence musically um, and in other areas. Was your mom's music and her influence there sort of artistically as well? It was, I mean, my mom was more into sort of like late 70s, early 80s uh, pop music. Um, So, you know, there was a really good um, 
a really good presence of uh, David Bowie. Um, but then we were listening to Michael Jackson and she liked the Bee Gees and she liked uh, even, you know, Steppenwolf. And uh, and then when you get into the 80s, like Crowded House and Hall and & Oates and Prince. And so those things were sort of there. But those things also because it was like popular music, which I mean, I enjoy that music, but um, I sort of reached a place where I was trying to rebel against that because it seemed so uh, so straight and just so simple, you know, like it, it wasn't very, it wasn't very disruptive. And so I started kind of pushing against that, I think. And just in case we haven't, I hadn't mentioned it specifically, um, your father originally was from Tennessee. Yeah. And your mother's Native American from uh, Nevada. Yeah. Um, our reservation is the Pyramid Lake Paiute Reservation. It's about 30 miles or so outside of Reno. Um, but my mom grew up in Salt Lake City. So she had very much the same kind of experience that I did growing up. Um, I think the difference between her and I um, ultimately ended up her being wanting to assimilate enough that she could just fit in. Um, whereas mine was, I tried that for a minute and then I decided that it was better to be um, on the outside, that it was better to to be rebellious and have an excuse to be rebellious. Um, Cause I never took my mom for being really too rebellious. And on that subject, do you remember, you know, the age that you became aware of the gross injustices? Was that something that, um, you know, did your mom ever talk to you about her experiences? Were you able to communicate about that? You know, I don't think communication was a big thing in my house, which made it really tough. And my awareness of just being a, an indigenous person um, who had claim to our tribal uh, community, um, that uh, my mom was was really quiet about that. And in the time and age that she grew up, um, you were either very proud or, or you were struggling with your identity. And so, uh, she was on the latter end where I think she was really struggling with her identity. And so I figured that stuff out because, um, you know, in the, the late eighties and early nineties, you know, with the advent of hip hop and, uh, with punk rock and just like the social messages, especially like with the uh, public enemy, um, that was a, that was a big one for me, uh, looking at someone like Malcolm X and then being able to sort of follow the rabbit hole of uh, social injustice that's associated with that and being able to parallel that to uh, indigenous struggles and civil rights movements and things. That's how I figured all that stuff out. And I think I figured that out maybe when I was a sophomore in, in high school, so maybe like 15, 16, when I really figured all that stuff out to a degree that I felt like I I. I had something that I needed to stand for. But obviously growing up in Park City, you know, you had experienced times at school or um, in the neighborhood just in general where you were made to feel different. Yeah, no, I, I was totally different, um, which is, I think, why I just, I gravitated towards skating and, and towards snowboarding. And uh, and I did a lot of drawing and I really liked films. You know, I spent a lot of time watching movies and things, which I I would attribute to my father uh, as well and my mother. I mean, we, we movies were a big deal in our household, movies and music. Um, 
so I found little places to little pockets, I guess, social pockets to sort of hide away and, and, uh, get away from the, the other feelings that I felt, you know, being ostracized or whatever. Um, but it, you know, and I don't want to make it sound like that I was some huge victim. I'm pretty sure I was a jerk, uh, as well. So as, as teenagers are, and, uh, but you know, I think like any teenager, you just got to figure out where you fit. And on that note, what was the first album that shaped who you are or had a big impact? Uh, Rollins Band, End of Silence. Um, and then during that time and place, um, there was a really a really good hardcore uh, scene and punk scene down in Salt Lake City um, because, uh, and I think it was like a big straight, it was a big straight edge scene as well um, because I think there's like such a, a large Mormon community that um, it was just like oppressed white suburban kids that want to go to shows and, you know, and, and kick ass. So it was like, um, it, it, there was a, a scene for that, which was really interesting. And so I was listening to a lot of stuff, um, but uh, Rollins band did it for me. Um, that really was the bridge between the old and the new and, uh, and the emotion that I think goes along with it. So now we're going to have a listen to Low Self-Opinion by Rollins Band from the album End of Silence. That was Low Self-Opinion by Rollins Band from The End of Silence. And that was Greg Deal's choice for the first record that had a major impact on him. So, Greg, how old were you when when you first heard that? Uh, I heard it when it first came out. Um, So I think that was 1991, maybe. And I was already on this sort of this journey of trying to find music and in this scene. And of course there wasn't Spotify or anything like that. Now, you know, you had to go to the record store and like find stuff and hear about stuff from, from friends. Um, so I must've been, I think 15, maybe right around there. And, uh, and yeah, that was, I just, the first time I heard it, it just, it blew my mind. Um, cause it was just so emotional and it was just so loud and so hard, you know, and, and, uh, it, it just, it was rooted in the sounds of, uh, you know, hardcore punk of the time, but it was also, uh, just, it, it, it was the first time I think I realized that emotion exists in those spaces, more emotion than just anger. Yeah. And, you know, I love that track that we just had because, um, it's sort of so aggressive and yet it's like the best self help guide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was uncle Hank's, uh, you know, chicken noodle for the soul of the time. <laughs> and at that point in your life, were you conscious of what you wanted to pursue? I was not, uh, because I didn't grow up in a household that told me that I could be anything I wanted. Um, I grew up in a household that was not necessarily aware of the fact that, um, 
you know, higher education was an option that, you know, coming from a practical point of view, you know, like doing art is a practical uh, practice. Um, my father was a car mechanic. My mom drove a school bus and uh, worked as a receptionist uh, at a chiropractor. And um, we grew up in sort of a rich town, but we were not rich at all. We, I think Dave Chappelle said it best. Uh, we made just enough money for us to be poor around white people, you know? And, and so it, it, I was not aware of the possibilities. The possibilities that I have now came because I, I worked to find them. Um, and so at that time, I, I don't know that I really had any, I didn't have any goals. I had dreams, but I didn't have goals. I didn't know how to obtain those dreams. I didn't know where I was going. I was living in the moment all the time, um, which wasted a lot of time. But, you know, that's what happens when you don't have a mentor or somebody telling you, you know, how to get from point A to point B. And what was the impetus behind your decision to study art at, was it George Mason University? Um, I read that it was in part due to the support of your wife. Yeah, I, I went to George Mason. Um, my wife and I met, um, I, I, I dabbled in, in competitive snowboarding for a while and injured myself um, pretty seriously in the process and then kind of decided to go to school. Uh, when I met my wife, she was in her last year of school and I was 23 and, and um, she knew what I wanted to do and she kind of helped me along and I just kind of worked it out. Um, once I think she was in my life, that was, uh, 1998. Um, and then we got married in 1999. Um, that allowed me to sort of, uh, have somebody to help me take this, this machine, this thing that is me and point it in a direction that was going to have, um, a positive effect on my life as well as on hers. And what was university like for you? You know, did it in any way provide a roadmap um, for coming out and and starting the career that you have today. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, kind of. I, you know, we. My wife comes from a, an upper middle class, you know, family, and so it was understood that you go to school and, you know, you get a job and you work that job, you know, for the rest of your days. Um, what I do does not really fall in line with that, and I think that that was all discovered and figured out, um, especially after the recession, uh, when I couldn't find any work, like I'd been laid off and, you know, couldn't find any work. And so I started creating work to try to hustle, you know, some work along the way, which kind of took me back to how I grew up, you know, being able to like make things work and hustle things sort of, um, uh, I guess street smarts, I suppose you could call it that, but it was just like figuring out how to be assertive and make things work. Um, I worked for the National Museum of American Indians right out of college. I got a mentorship to Italy with an indigenous performance artist um, at the Venice Biennale. And then I came back and I worked freelance, which was a big hustle. And then uh, the recession hit. I lost everything. I got a job, got laid off. And then it was just like, okay, so now what? Because I followed all the rules. I went to college, you know, and, and I got a job and none of it worked. And I think it was clear to me that the universe was letting me know that I needed to um, stick to my work and that it was my life's work and that I needed to figure out a way to make it work. And I had a wife uh, that supported me and stood behind me and believed in me, which I feel incredibly fortunate about. And you mentioned the James Luna performance piece at the Venice Biennale. Mm -hmm. 
which you were supporting him with. Was that a big moment for you uh, in realizing that you could incorporate, you know, performance art into your work? It, it was because um, performance art was never in my wheelhouse. I took a performance art class in college and it was the goofiest thing that I've ever taken. You know, it was just this weird. I was like, what is this? You know, and and um, and James uh, opened my eyes to that. And I had some ideas, but I didn't I didn't really realize how to put any of those things forward. I think that um, I was still working within this idea of conventional rules, you know, that like you have to almost like you have to have permission to do things. And once I realized that you don't have to have permission to do things, you can make anything happen. And so that's what happened. But yeah, James was, you know, winning that mentorship and spending a few weeks with him in Italy opened my eyes to the possibility of first off, what is art? You know, what, what does art look like? What does performance art look like? And how does performance art, um, you know, affect your practice and, and affect the stories that you're able to tell through your work. And, uh, you know, James always said that the performance art is one of the most important mediums to native people because it gives us power in real time. And uh, I've always stood by that and have used that as sort of a catalyst for my own work. And what was your first performance art piece? Um, it was uh, it was called The Last American Indian on Earth. Uh, oh, that was your first. Yeah, yeah. That. Wow, Greg, you came in strong. Well, you know, my wife and I, so we had like two kids and we were losing our house. Our house was going to go into foreclosure. And I had this whole conversation with her where I was like, look, I have this idea and I think this idea can blow up and I just want to swing for the fences. And the whole concept of it was sort of to use a street art sort of uh, model of taking art and putting it in the streets and not asking for permission. And so I you know, she was like, okay, like, let's do it. And she helped me with the initial photographs and we got everything going. So I think we started it in April, 2013. And by um, maybe August, I think we were in the Huffington post. And then a month or two later, the Washington post was working with us for a larger piece. And so I I worked on it for a year. And while this is happening, like, Literally, we didn't have any food. We didn't have any money. We were trying to, I was trying to sell work. I was trying to get opportunities. Our house was going into foreclosure house. We lived in for almost 15 years and, uh, it was just total chaos. And this was like the last ditch effort. Like this has got to work. And I just worked my tail off for it. And just for listeners who aren't yet aware of the last American Indian on earth, uh, just give us a, a description, paint us a picture um, of, you know, what it's about, what it entails. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's uh, tongue in cheek, obviously, because um, I'm not the last American Indian on earth. Um, but it's uh, the perception of non-native people believing that we look a certain way, we act a certain way, or that we're all, that we are all dead, that we don't exist anymore. And um, I essentially uh, adorn myself in an outfit that is all store-bought. So it's like a fake headdress and fake leggings and, you know, fake everything. But to people who don't know what they're looking at, it looks like a, a real native outfit, like a Plains Indian outfit. So in effect, I, I embody the uh, stereotype and I went into public 
and I documented the way that people would react and interact with me through film and photography and did it for a year. I went to New York. I went to uh, Oregon. I went to Santa Fe. I spent a lot of time in D.C., and so it's about stereotype. It's about the perception of, of, uh, others and the way that that perception is thrust upon us. It's about identity. Um, and it's about my own sort of journey as well, you know, and, and the difficulty of growing up and not having anything around me that's going to identify, um, that's identifiable as something recognizable. Like I'm not seeing myself in films unless it's like dances with wolves or, you know, last of the Mohicans. Um, both of which are films about white dudes who suffer in behalf of Indians. So it's like, there's, there's no real, uh, representation. So it was about that too. And, uh, it was, a, it was a trip. The whole thing was a trip. And one visual detail that you omitted, cause there are so many and it's it's such an incredibly powerful piece. Um, you also have a, a hand painted across your mouth. Yeah, um, there's there's some old George Catlin uh, paintings, um, which is, I suppose, considered to be like the first major documentation of uh, Native people where there's a handprint. And sometimes handprints on like a horse means that you like outflanked an enemy. Um, I think you can mean all those things, but I really think that it's sort of a symbol of silence. It's a black handprint over my face that like that that's silence, but it has a practical application as well. Uh, face makeup on, you know, uh, carrying around makeup on your face in such a way um, creates an illusion uh, that's scary to people. So it changes the way they interact with you as well. So it's also a power move. And how taxing is a piece like that on you? emotionally it's really taxing <laughs> and that's a that and that's a, an excellent point because uh the first couple times i did it i just found it so mentally exhausting that i actually told my wife i was like i don't i don't know if i can keep doing this like this is really really tough um but when the first article came out in the huffington post i was able to sort of see the residual effects of it and i was starting to hear from young native people um and from non-native people who had thoughts and feelings about this and it begat a conversation that I think really sort of made the sacrifice worthwhile. Um, cause then I was able to see that, that I was speaking in a language that people understood and that people also didn't understand. And I think that made it, uh, made it good. Cause there's like fruits to your labors, right? You can kind of see what comes of it. Mm. And were there any reactions that really stayed with you? Yeah. Um, there's a couple in the film that I think uh, are are pretty stark, um, but there was one where I was walking to the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., and there's a road that leads up to the Lincoln Memorial and then goes around it and then crosses a bridge into Northern Virginia into Roslyn, and there was a minivan filled with people, and it was driving past me, and it was red, uh, like a maroon red, and it like slowed down to a stop, and all the windows rolled down, and everybody in the car uh, stuck their head out the window and all started slapping their mouth, the whoa, 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 like at me all at the same time and then sped away. Um, and those things are really hard to capture for a documentary. <laughs> so you can't really include it, but like things like that would happen and people would get in my space, you know, and that was always, um, kind of tough too. Cause you don't, you don't want to be too aggressive because you're trying to capture something, but it, you also just, you want to be aggressive because people are in your space. 
And at one point, you were going to take the last American Indian on Earth to the FedEx field in Washington. What ultimately made you decide not to? Um, well, I I think that those spaces are um, they're aggressive. Uh, you know, football games in general, I mean, are pretty aggressive, and and um, I think those spaces, especially like tailgating uh, areas where people are drinking and, you know, they're all hardcore about those things. Like it can go one way or the other, right? It could it could be people um, that are excited to see you and that sort of overdo it. And then there, which is also difficult. Um, but then I think there's also people that if they found or thought that you weren't aligned with them that could be unnecessarily aggressive. And so those those things are realities. You know, do I really want to step into a space that um, one side or the other is going to be uh, overtly aggressive? Well, for what it's worth, I think you made the right call. Um, and, you know, you really, you have to look after your dear self, you know, first and foremost. But you're still actively involved in some ways in the Redskins debate. Um, I I mean, I am. I'm not as much because I, I lived in the D.C. area for almost 17 years. And, you know, I had kids that were going to school. So we were trying to traverse this whole, uh, you know, Washington football team business and uh, found myself at the forefront of that discussion which is important um but like a lot of things you know like the media picks it up and it's the it's the moment and then it kind of disappears um because it's not sexy enough anymore uh but yeah i mean i still i think that it the root of the the mascot problem is um is absolutely the perception of uh, non-native people and uh, stereotype and identity and what all those things look like. So, um, yeah, I think that's still a big part of all that. So you talk about art as moments, um, which I think is really beautiful and actually a lovely way to think about art. Why do you think it's so important to capture these moments? I, you know, there's this old cliche like um, that you'll hear in art school, really, you know, the art is life. Um, and I, I feel that uh, artists that are impactful are creating work that is um, within this blurred space of their lives as well. And in the same way, you know, that we uh, spend time together as family and as friends, uh, or as relations, you know, the, the taking pictures together, um, spending time with one another, building memories, doing all of the different things that we do. Um, I think all of that parallels into art as well, that there are these beautiful moments that you can capture, um, that you can, that you can not just capture, but that you can share that can play a larger role in, in consideration of everything that's happening around you artistically or in life or, or otherwise. And, um, yeah, I think that those, those things are, I mean, what you're looking at when you're looking at a, a painting, uh, you know, or a performance piece or a film is you're looking at moments, you know, moments in someone's brain that have been created and that are being articulated in some medium in some way that reflects life. And I think that's that's beautiful. And that's very much behind Outsiders. Tell us a little bit about Outsiders, um, your portraits or moments capturing indigenous people fighting back against white men with uh, punk rock lyrics. Yeah. Uh, so the latest set of paintings I've been working on um, is is called The Others. And uh, it is um, 
reappropriated old comic book images from the 40s and 50s um, that are very stereotypical and very much a part of that sort of Americana uh, era. Uh, looking at films, you know, that's John Wayne, that's Cowboys and Indians and things of that nature. And so I've reappropriated these old comic book images and uh, changed the dialogue of those images to... Um, to being uh, lyrics from from songs that that resonate with those those spaces resonate with the struggle. Um, so much of punk rock is about pushing against the grain, is about um, overcoming you know these different power structures that are trying to oppress or trying to take away or trying to stifle. Um, it's about freedom. It's about all these things. These are all things that uh, that ring true in uh, in in the indigenous struggle still today. So it, it made the most sense, but also, you know, punk rock really spoke to me as a young person still speaks to me today and, uh, has oftentimes articulated for me the way I felt. And so being able to use it in this way, um, has been incredibly exciting, but also liberating, you know, going back to that place of healing that we're talking about, you know, orange juice for the ears, you know, that, that I've been on this path of sort of re-looking at music and appreciating and realizing this music and the place it's had in my life and uh, what it means to me and sharing that with my own children uh, and, and being able to, to, to go on this path, this journey, which has helped me uh, look at different traumas and things that have happened in my life and to be able to articulate it and enjoy it and sort of let go and putting the record on the, you know, onto the turntable and, and listening to the scratch just before the song is about to start. You know, that's, that's been part of the process of the others as well, which has been incredible for me. Incredible. So Greg, what music would you send into space? Um, because I'm, kind of a jerk and I'm a bit sarcastic. <laughs> I picked sex and violence by the exploited. Cause I feel like if we're going to send a message into space, we need to let them know if they come to this planet, what they're in for. <laughs> yep. That's all it is. Yep. <laughs> okay. So let's take a listen to sex and violence by the exploited. I want to go to others fail. That was Sex and Violence by The Exploited, and that was the track Greg Deal would send into space. Because, Greg. <laughs> because, because, I mean, I've listened to your show, and, you know, there's a lot of David Bowie choices on this question. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and it totally makes sense, you know, but um, I just, I, I'm... I I love where I am and where we live. I love this planet. I love this earth. I love people, but I'm also just cynical enough to believe that like, you know, the, the lot of problems that we have, a lot of the things that are going on are one way or another connected to sex and violence. And that's pretty much, that's the human condition. It's amazing to me that you can have a five minute song that uses just three words. I mean, right. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's that's economy. And the melody is actually really good. It's like really catchy, which uh, every time it comes on, my my thirteen year old, she's almost fourteen. Um, she just starts laughing because she she know she knows where my head's at with that song, and I just think it's funny. So along with that, is there any sentiment that you'd like to send into space? I don't know. I mean, you know, I think that that human beings are just so wholeheartedly arrogant about our existence and and so sure of of our place in the universe if not our place in the world um that i don't know i think it's really hard to be benevolent when we ourselves like our nature is not very benevolent um so I don't know. Um, that and space kind of scares me. Like space and the ocean, those are just two places I'm not going to really hang out. <laughs> uh, but you have a current project you know, called Protect Our Elders, which is very powerful. Um, and actually that sentiment, you know, that's really been coming up for me a lot recently. I think that's so important and it's such a sort of vital realization um, but, you know, just tell us a little bit about that and, and why you think it's so important to protect our elders, particularly at a time like now. The um, well, I mean, so that that the piece I created um, of uh, an older person and it says protect our elders um, is in response to uh, the COVID-19 business and um, and to, you know, the talking heads saying that uh, that our old people are expendable. You know, culturally speaking, um, our people, our old people are like our libraries. You know, there are language protectors. There are story carriers. They're, they're our uh, wisdom keepers. You know, these are the these are the ones that are going to teach us our stories and help us understand these things. These are not expendable people. These are the people that are carrying all of the things that we need to know and understand, and uh, to carry on ourselves to teach our children. And um, and so it was in response to that, and that is the place um, that I believe our elders are in. So we've got to the the sad part of the show um, where we have to imagine a world without you, Greg. Um, have you thought about the song that you'd like to have at your memorial? This was the hardest question, man. This was hard because I, I went to my wife and I went to my kids and I went to my friends. And I said, hey, what what song, what music do you hear that makes you think of me? Um, you know, cause is a memorial sad or is it happy? Is it, you know, are you playing something that's there? And, you know, my, my, um, 11 year old son, he's like nervous breakdown, you know, by, by black flag, um, from their first, you know, seven inch single. And I'm like, yeah, that's a song about losing your crap. I don't know if that's the song that, you know, you play at my memorial. I love that song, but, um, uh, I landed on uh, "Hurt" by Johnny Cash because uh, Johnny Cash is has always been an important part of sort of my my musical journey um, because his aesthetic is punk rock, uh, but this song is so much this is one of the most human songs i think because it's about pain and it's about suffering and it's about addiction um and it's about uh the fact that we are just people that we're here one day we're gone the next you know and and that those things are just part of the life process and uh and my wife agreed with me um and for the record 
the fir- when I did ask my wife, she said "Creep" by Radiohead, um, and I was like, "Nice, thanks." So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so let's take a listen to "Hurt" by Johnny Cash. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I focus on the pain. The only thing that's real I wear this crown That was Hurt by Johnny Cash and that was the song that Greg Deal would choose to have at his memorial. Uh, Also his wife's choice once it had been decided that creep was not an option, which I completely, um, completely understand. (laughs) And you and your wife have five children. Um, how is their experience and integration of their lineage? Um, it's a part of our home. Uh, my wife is not native, um, but she recognizes the importance of their membership in our tribal community. And so it plays a role in our home for sure. Um, and I think enriches a lot of those things and gives us a place to talk about like why these things are the way they are, you know, and, and conversations about history and things that have happened in history and the way that they will talk about those things in a public school system versus like, you know, what really happened are all part of the conversation of our home, which I think is important and, um, and also kind of exciting. I mean, my, my daughter's like, I'm a huge fan of history. I I incorporate it into my work and I think about it in any of the philosophical, you know, things that I'm tackling or talking about. And so my daughter, my oldest daughter, um, has pointed out the amount of information that she gets versus the amount of information she gets from school. Um, and, and how, how kind of cool that is that she can come to me and ask me about these things and, and I'll tell her. And so it all plays a part in our home. It's a big part in our home. And do you and your children ever work on art projects together? Sometimes, um, the younger ones, not so much, but, um, Sage, my oldest, has expressed her desire to be an artist. And um, so I've pulled her into uh, a few performance pieces. Um, She helped me with some murals last year uh, up in Denver. Um, So I I just I'm trying to expose her to as much as possible so that she has more choices and a a better understanding of what those choices are than what I did um, when I got into uh, college. And is there one record in particular that you would pass on to Sage and your other four kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Fugazi, 13 songs, um, which I think might sound like a punk cliche, but uh, I, I think that there's so much in that album and there's so much of it that bridges the old punk with sort of newer punk, you know, and, and all of the different things that were sort of happening, you know, it's coming out of, uh, the DC punk scene, which was so, uh, you know, so transforming for, you know, this type of music and what was happening and how it was happening. And, you know, it's a, it's a little bit minor thread. It's a little bit something new, you know, it, it has roots in these things, which I think are important. It's not too hard. It's not too soft. I think it's a perfect bridge to all of those things. And is there a project you're currently working on or, or something coming soon? You know, what's next for Greg? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm actually um been working on a performance piece called the Punk Pan-Indian Romantic Comedy. Um I did 
sort of a one hour version of this where I'm telling stories about how I grew up. So it's spoken word, it's performance, but it's integrating music into it. Um, much of which, um, without sounding like I'm, I'm kissing butt too much, um, came from my listening to your podcast and sort of having this conversation along with the journey that I've just been on for the last several years in collecting records and, and reestablishing my own identity in the music that I grew up with and love listening to. Um, and I'm growing this performance piece into something larger where it's about futurism. It's about identity. It's about the integration of being both, uh, you know, traditional and modern, a, a modern indigenous group of people. And I think that it has room to really open people's eyes to the sort of modern existence of indigenous people, the duality of our existence of being both native and also being Americans and, uh, loving this music and also loving our communities. It's, uh, it's a, an exciting, an exciting thing, I think. Oh, well, I, I can't wait to experience that and super honored to have played even the smallest part. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, coming to the end of the show, it always feels impossible. It feels like, you know, trying to squeeze a gallon of orange juice into a tiny bottle because there's so much more to talk about with you. Um, I always ask, um, you know, before we wrap this up, what is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the year choices? I think that there is a uh, disruption sort of aesthetic that's connected to all these things. I mean, all these things are about disrupting spaces with music and with emotion and with words and with our bodies, um, all of which I think you could find in my work. So I think there's a thread uh, with all of those things in that way. And what is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? I think um, that we're still here, but also that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is than it is to ask for permission <laughs> to to disrupt spaces is uh is just incredibly important you know are you going to go away or are you going to uh step forward and are you going to enact uh some change in your life and in the lives of those around you what a wonderful sentiment to end on um so greg thank you so much for coming on the show um we're going to play out in just a minute to waiting room by fugazi uh but you know i just want to say thank you so much for you know sharing some of what you do and your orange juice for the years thank you thank you for having me i i enjoy you uh you're uh, you're awesome so thank you for having me mm -hmm.